Please take your bulletin insert where you can find our scripture references references for today as we uh, discuss God's wisdom for friendship. Uh, This summer, as we are doing a bit of a topical study through the Proverbs, you may remember that as we looked at Proverbs 2, I promised there were a few topics that we would come back to. Uh, One of those we looked at several weeks ago from Proverbs chapter 5, God's wisdom for sexual purity. Uh, And we also uh, plan to come back to God's wisdom for the company that we keep. And so today we are looking at God's wisdom for the friends that we take and those influences that we take into our lives as we look at God's wisdom for friendship. You can find today uh, that we're beginning in Proverbs 13, but also taking in uh, some of 17, 18, 22, and 27. uh, And we'll read together as our text for the day all of these Proverbs Uh, and then begin to open them. Uh, Before we look at God's word, please join me in prayer as we seek his blessing upon the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you that you deign to call us friends. We thank you that Christ has proven what friendship looks like by laying down his life for his friends and what true love ought to look like among the brethren. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom today as we consider uh, the friends that we take and the influences that we have. We pray that you would cause us to walk with you in wisdom and pray that as we walk with you in wisdom, you would make us wise as well. We pray this all for Christ's sake, in his name, amen. Well, here now, God's word uh, as we find it in the Proverbs concerning friendship. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. If you have uh, heard any of the alarm bells ringing in the social sciences, you may already be aware of the newest epidemic that we're being told is facing our American culture. It is a growing condition uh, that affects up to, uh, some say, up to 47% of our population. Uh, It is a condition that has been linked to heart attacks and to stroke, to drug abuse, Uh, to insomnia in those who are older, very often it's been associated with cognitive decline. Those who are younger, it's been associated with clinical depression. Uh, And in its most aggressive form, it's thought to be able to shorten a person's life by up to 15 years. This is not an epidemic of smallpox. It's not an epidemic of tobacco use or obesity. It is an epidemic of loneliness. Now, it may be tempting to think that this is just another one of these manufactured crises that we're looking at. But there is, there is a growing body of literature, a growing body of research, detailing just how our shallowing social connections uh, are affecting all of us. And it really is a monster of our own creation. 
it's not hard to see how it happens. It's the perfect uh, convergence of our highly mobilized society where uh, divorce rates are very high and marriage rates are very low. You add to that all of our artificial social media interactions, uh, uh, perhaps a dash of good old-fashioned American individualism, and this is where we find ourselves. Uh, we have many surface-level connections, but very few deep and abiding friendships, and it's the air that we breathe. And if you have experienced loneliness, you know how painful it can be. If you've been lonely for a few weekends, you feel left out. If you've been lonely for a few decades, you feel like the whole world has passed you by. Loneliness can be terribly isolating and terribly dehumanizing. But the Scriptures warn us today that there is something more deadly and more hurtful even than loneliness. Far worse than the pain of having shallow friendships is the damage of having ungodly ones. In scriptural terms, it would be far worse to have the wrong friends than to have none at all. Interestingly, friendship in the Bible is basically assumed. This reflects something of a culture that was much different than ours, where, where people had to be more closely knit because your friends were a lifeline. Ruin was always around the corner. Life and death was sometimes at your very doorstep, and everyone needed someone they could rely on. And if, if you didn't have someone to rely on, well, uh, maybe ruin would come for you. A brother is born for adversity, we read in Proverbs 17, and so it was. Life was hard, and you needed someone. You needed a friend. And so in the Proverbs, friendship is a necessity. But God's way of wisdom uh, is to urge us to seek more than simply subsistence-level friendships, just friendship as a necessity, just friendship as a way to get by. God's way of wisdom is to push us to dive in and to uh, commit ourselves to deep and abiding friendships, the kind of friendships that make a life of godliness worth living. Today we're going to consider God's call to biblical friendships. And we're going to take the logic of the first proverb as our starting point. Notice that Proverbs 13.20 tells us two things. It tells us that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, and yet, on the other hand, the companion of fools will suffer harm. That is, that there is a blessing associated with, uh, with godly friendships. It's a good thing. You increase in wisdom. You grow in these things that the God, uh, the God of Scripture tells us are worth growing in. On the other hand, there is a curse associated with ungodly companions. We align ourselves with those that know not the Lord and His anointed. It actually becomes a curse to us. And so we're going to consider uh, friendship in just that order. The blessing of godly friendships and the curse of ungodly companions. And then uh, at the end, we're going to take a practical look at, at how that touches on our own lives. So let's begin by asking the question, what are the blessings of having godly friendships? Well, much in, in every way, but I think uh, in the Proverbs, there are, there are four principal blessings of godly friendships. We'll make them easy. They all begin with an S. Uh, godly friends first shape us for wisdom. This is the point of Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, and it doesn't, doesn't take a rocket surgeon to understand the way that this works, that uh, in just a few months, perhaps, glad some of you got that, in just a few months, perhaps, uh, many uh, students, Christian and non-Christian students all over the country are going to be leaving their homes behind and going off to their first semester at college, and Christian parents and non-Christian parents alike are wondering what child is going to come back to them at Christmas break. 
It sometimes only takes a few short months to have an enormous character change, and, and the effect of that change happens very often based on the friends that we take. We understand uh, the way that friends influence us, but the scriptures are telling us that the influence of friendship can be a blessing for the believer. We think about some of the, the biblical friendships that we find in the scriptures, the good and, and godly friendships. Certainly David and Jonathan are at the top of the list. They're the ones that we think of first, but there are others as well. Paul had a friend. Paul had a friend that he called a son, a man who was uh, maybe 20 years his junior named Timothy, who, who went around with him and saw what he did in ministry and saw the way that he taught, and he, he gained wisdom from Paul. Paul became a, an influence in Timothy's life. Well, late in Paul's life, although uh, we're not sure that he really knew it was as late as it was, late in Paul's life, he wrote to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. He warned Timothy that in the last days there would come times of difficulty because people would be lovers of self and lovers of money and they'd be proud and, and abusive and disobedient and ungrateful and ungodly and on and on it goes all the way to those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. There will be times of difficulty. You will be thrust into a world with all sorts of ungodly people and in the midst of this warning of difficulty, Paul reminds Timothy that their friendship had become a safeguard for Timothy. He says later in that chapter, verse 10, you, however, he lists all of these ungodly influences, and he says, you, however, have followed my teaching. Now, Paul's an apostle. We might expect him to stop there. Now, the weight of the apostles' influence is in their teaching, after all, right? But he keeps going. You, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. See, Timothy knew Paul as few other people knew Paul. Everybody else got his instruction and his teaching. They read about Paul's wisdom, but Timothy witnessed Paul's wisdom. They shared their lives together. They had a friendship like few other men had. And Paul is telling him, that is a safeguard for you. As the Lord puts Christians together in friendship, we walk with those who are wiser than we are, and we become wise. This is the way it still happens. It happens in the church when younger Christian parents strike up a friendship with older Christian parents. And there are some of you in this room that I'm indebted to because of the way that you have taught me wisdom, and you, you begin to grow together in friendship with these other believers who are further along than you, and you can go to them with, with questions. Well, we've got this discipline problem. How did you deal with this? How should we think about dating, and when does that happen? And, and, and all of these other questions as you deal with as Christian parents, and you have friends who have gone before you, and the Lord grows us in wisdom. So godly friends shape our lives for wisdom. Secondly, though, godly friends speak truth that we need to hear. Godly friends shape our lives for wisdom, and godly friends speak truth that we need to hear. Look at the bottom, chapter uh, 27, beginning in verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Here's a diagnostic tool for you. Here's how you know which of your friendships are true and which are false. False friends worry about maintaining the status of the relationship. They don't want to do anything that's going to rock the boat. They simply want to get along and they want to say nice, comfortable things. But your true friends are the ones who trust the friendship well enough 
to be able to tell you something that's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because that's what you need to hear. Joe Beakey says it well. He says, real friends will never stab you in the back. They may wound you to your face, but they will do it to promote healing rather than harm. They won't do it for their own ends, but because they care about you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And here's one of the dangers of relying on this, this modern phenomenon of social media for the bulk of our, our friendships and our interactions. Uh, the problem uh, with these things is that in many of the forms that they take, social media make it easy to organize your friends according to whether or not they agree with you. You pull up your Facebook feed, and what you see is an algorithm uh, that sorts all of your friends into people that are reading the same articles as you and posting the same thoughts as you and saying the things that you want to hear. And it's all there, and if in case you do have that one outlier friend that says something that makes you uncomfortable, it, it makes it easy simply to tick that, tick that little box to make their comments disappear without them ever knowing that you've silenced them. And so we compartmentalize and we, we draw ourselves into those friends that tell us those things that align with what we're already thinking. And this approach is bleeding over into our other friendships, our real friendships. One sociologist, not, not a... Uh, a believer uh, by any stretch, but one sociologist uh, diagnosed the effect that it's having, the way that we're, we're dealing with friendships through social media. He says, the moral content of classical friendship has been lost. You hear that? The moral content of classical friendship has been lost. We have ceased to believe that a friend's highest purpose is to summon us to the good by offering advice and correction. A friend fulfills her duty, we suppose, by taking our side by validating our feelings, by supporting our decisions, helping us to feel good about ourselves. And so we tell little white lies. We make excuses when a friend does something wrong. We, we do what we can to keep the boat steady because we're busy people and we want our friendships to be fun and friction-free. Believers ought to be committed to friendships that have a little bit of friction in them. This is what we find. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen unless you put the pieces of iron together and you rub them a little bit. There's got to be some, some friction. Typically, the way that you sharpen one piece of, of iron or steel with another is that you have one uh, very straight, very true, hardened piece of steel, and you use it to correct the, the ragged edge of a softer piece. It's a refining process, but it only happens as there is some interaction between the two, and so it is with godly friends. Godly friends are committed to earnest Counsel, godly friends are committed to teaching you and speaking to you the truth in love. Godly friends are committed to exposing the sins that you think you're hiding from yourself and from everyone else. Godly friends are the ones who, take, who talk through foolish choices with God's wisdom, and they break open the echo chamber of our thoughts so that God's wisdom can enter in. So godly friends shape us, and they, they speak truth. But third, godly friends sustain us through adversity. Proverbs 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Don't miss the point of that there. That's really not a comparison. Uh, it's not saying friends are okay, but brothers, woo, they're really good. Uh, it's a general statement. It's saying that those who know us best, those who are closest to us, are those who can offer encouragement and support when life hits us the hardest. In fact, look at it in, in concert with 1824. It says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
And this brings us back to that whole loneliness epidemic. Because when the, the sociologists study loneliness, they're not talking about whether a person has many acquaintances. Are there many people who know your name and shake your hand when you walk into a room? Are there many people who, who sort of have an idea of who you are? Are you perhaps the, the most popular person in your office or in your class? That's not what it's talking about. Because 1824 tells us you might have many companions, and yet nobody who knows you very well, nobody who's invested in you deeply enough to offer encouragement and support when you need it, and that is loneliness too. One of God's blessings through Christian friendship is the way that he puts believers together with believers so that we can uphold one another when, when difficulties arise, when we face hardship. Every Presbyterian knows the name John Calvin. If you don't, see me afterwards, we'll, we'll have a talk. Um, every Presbyterian knows John Calvin. Far fewer, I think, know the names Guillaume Farrell and Pierre Verret. It's safe to assume, though, if we did not have Farrell and Verre, we would never have known Calvin as we know him. These two men were, were Calvin's closest friends in all the world. They were co-pastors who labored with him at different times uh, in Geneva, and they kept up a correspondence. We have now remaining over a thousand letters between these three men as they grew together in their friendship. In 1537, uh, Farrell and Calvin together were ejected from Geneva because of some disagreements over theology, particularly uh, the Lord's Supper. They were banished from the city and told in no uncertain language not to come back. And so they were kicked out, and they both took up pastorates in other places. But they continued their friendship. Well, four years later, uh, Geneva's leaders pleaded with Calvin to come back and continue the ministry he began. Famously, Calvin wrote to Pharrell, his best friend, saying of Geneva, Rather would I submit to death a hundred times than to that cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. There was affliction, there was hardship in Calvin's life, and he needed someone he could talk with. Well, through their friendship, Pharrell and Verre sustained Calvin. They encouraged him. He did return to Geneva. He, he returned to, to fill out the remainder of his uh, his ministry and his life. A decade after he returned, he dedicated his commentary on Titus to his two friends, and this is what he wrote. I do not believe that there have ever been such friends who have lived together in such a deep friendship in this world as we have in our ministry. I have served in the office of pastor with you two. There was never any appearance of envy. It seems to me that you two and I were as one person, and that's wonderful for their own particular friendship, but this is how Calvin uh, spoke of, of the church and, and what their friendship had had, the impact that it had on God's people. He says, he went on to say that because of their deep friendship, the snarling dogs who wished to devour the church of Christ in Geneva were able to do nothing more than bark and whimper. They sustained one another. They upheld one another when there was hardship and difficulty. They encouraged one another with truth. They spoke into one another's lives. You may not be banished from your city, I hope not. But you all face hardship. You all come upon sadness and, and sickness and, and discouragement. And what a blessing when there's a believer who knows us well enough to listen to our hurts. What a blessing when we have a friend who will hold us up in prayer. We have somebody who will stand by us even when our sin is so glaringly obvious that it drives every other person in our circles away from us. 
What a blessing that there's somebody who's committed to us because together we are committed to Christ and to his work and his people. I hope you know a friend like that. I hope you have someone who sustains you through adversity. There is one more uh, blessing of godly friends, and it really is the culmination of, of all of these other things. What is the, the sum total of, of our friends in Christ doing these things, shaping us and speaking to us and sustaining us? Well, it is that they show us what the gospel is like. And see, the truth is, even if you don't have a friend in all the world that you can text in the middle of the night, somebody you can, you can call up with your deepest hurts, every true believer has a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Every true believer has a friend who is born for adversity. In the upper room, on the night of his arrest, Jesus told his 11 closest companions, no longer do I count you as servants, but as friends. Why were they his friends? He says they were his friends because he spoke truth to them. He says, all that the Father has made known to me, I have revealed to you. They were his friends because he loved them to the end. They were his friends because he gave himself as a sacrifice to redeem them from the power of sin, to save us, to save his people from, uh, from death because of our rebellion. But Jesus also gave his life to show us what friendship is like. It says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. The gospel teaches us what love and what Christian fellowship and friendship is supposed to look like, and, and when it works the best, Christian friendship actually shows us what the gospel is supposed to look like. Because if you have Christian friends who are committed to you, who are committed to, to telling you hard things about yourself, who are committed to making sure that you are growing in Christ, that is, that is influenced and, and that is pushed by the same love of Christ that has been poured into their hearts. Christian friends are those who want to see Christ formed in us. They give themselves to comfort us in our weakness, to encourage us in our failures. When you read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there are many things that come in, in Christian's uh, way and in his purview, things to bless him. He gets scrolls and keys and armor and, and garments and all of these things, but the most faithful thing that he has are to his two friends, faithful and hopeful, who walk with him on the road to the celestial city, and they uphold him, and they, they have conversation together as you go along. Some of the best dialogue in that entire analogy is between Christian and the two friends who walk with him. And we see what friendship is supposed to be like. I realize not everybody in this room is going to be your best friend. And, and your faithful, your closest, uh, hopeful Christian friend doesn't need to be somebody uh, in this congregation. But what a joy when the Lord shows us more of himself, when he teaches us his gospel through the friendships that he gives to us. Well, there's our first point. We've seen some of the blessings of godly friendships, but just as truly, we need to be aware of the curses that come through godless companions. Now, I hope you're taking notes, because if you were tracking with those four blessings, it actually is very easy to understand the curses that come through associating with godless friends. It's easy to see those associations, because in reality, Sin is not very inventive. Sin has only one trick up its sleeve. Sin can only take the good things that the Lord has made and try to twist them and try to pervert them into something opposite to what the Lord has intended. We saw this a few weeks ago. We talked about the way that the Lord gave uh, Christian husbands and wives the gift of sexual intimacy. It was meant to be a grace within that relationship, within that marriage, but, but sexual sin turns that upside down. It tempts us to think that sex 
inside of God's boundaries is repressive. And really, sex without boundaries is, is where it's at, and that's uh, what we ought to be seeking after. That's where true freedom lies, and our, and our sexual revolution has lured many and enslaved many through the, the promise of guilt-free sin and commitment-free sex, and all sorts of things. All it is 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 sin taking a good thing the Lord has given and turning it upside down. The same thing happens with many other blessings the Lord has given. The Lord gives His people food, and He's made much of it delightful and delicious, and yet uh, we have a terrible relationship with food, some of us, and we we turn it on on its head. And the very thing that's given to sustain our bodies becomes something that we poison ourselves with. And we become gluttonous and we give ourselves to indulgement when we ought not to give ourselves to indulgement. The same thing happens with work. The Lord has given us work as a grace. He's given it to us in order to glorify the Lord, to provide for our families. And what do we do? We turn work into our idol. We take our families and we, we sacrifice them to the altars of productivity and advancement and, and higher placement and, and advancement in the company. You see, this is what sin does. It reverses all the blessings that the Lord has given us. And so it is with friendship. Sin entered the world and depravity touched every nook and cranny of our experience. And even our relationships have been turned upside down so that what was intended to be a blessing becomes a curse apart from God's work. So what do godly friends do? Well, they shape us for wisdom. Proverbs 13.20 tells us that the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, don't forget, as we're reading Proverbs, that the fool is a theological category. Folly, foolishness, is is not so much about uh, intellect as it is about righteousness. And so the fool is the one who has rejected the truth. The, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's warning us that if you make those uh, who believe that there is no God your closest companions, they will influence you in the direction away from the Lord and away from his people. Do not be deceived, Paul wrote. Bad company ruins good morals. Well, godly friends speak truth that we need to hear. What do godless companions do? Well, they tell us either what is most comfortable for us, those things that we simply want to hear to keep the relationship going, or uh, they may give us simply the wisdom of a world that is in rebellion against God. There's advice that you can find in the world. There there are helpful things that you can find in the world, and and unbelievers have lots of of intellect and lots of wisdom to share. Much of it can be helpful. Your, Your unbelieving accountant will be able to talk you through your financial options far better than your pastor will. And your unbelieving doctor can tell you whether you ought to opt for surgery or chemotherapy. And your unbelieving brother might have a pretty good handle on when it's time to move mom along into a full-time nursing facility. Some of these things are really helpful and they're good. And the advice of the world is to be found in many places. But mark my word, when you make godless men and women your closest counselors, you will receive advice that does not take into account the truth of who the Lord has made you to be and how he has called you to walk with him. At best, you will see things, you will receive wisdom that is, uh, that is merely scratching at the surface. At worst, you will get advice uh, that is damaging to your soul. You will not receive wisdom essential for godliness from those who have refused to submit themselves to God's wisdom. And that's because sin turns our relationships upside down. And so godly friends sustain us through our worst adversity. 
but godless companions abandon us when we most need a true friend. I know there are unbelievers who are incredibly loyal friends. Thieves can be loyal to thieves, thick as thieves, so the saying goes. And there are unbelievers who shame some of the believers in this room with the way that they care for one another, the way that they reach out to one another, the way that they are to support network to one another. But when a believer faces a real hardship, and I mean, I mean like a really, really big one, and not just some surface-level thing that you happen to have run into, not just a bump along the road, when a believer faces a real-life hardship, what do we need? Well, a micro-loan could be useful. A cup of tea and, and a pat on the back, a hug, could be comforting. And a card in the mail could be a nice gesture, but without the truth, of who God is, and without the truth of his sovereign direction over all his creatures and all their actions, they are all false comforters. They speak peace, peace, where there is no peace, and they lead God's people astray. What is the the sustenance that we need to get us through our affliction? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us, in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. When calamity strikes, believers need the encouragement that God is working for them because He loves them and because He knows them, and that is the sustenance that non-believers cannot give you. We should not be surprised that the Scriptures regularly warn us against associating closely with those who do not know the Lord. That doesn't mean that every unbeliever in your life ought to get the cold shoulder from you, right? It doesn't mean that we go out into the world and say, are you a believer? I'm sorry, I can't talk to you today. For the sake of our Christian witness, we can and we ought to befriend all kinds of people. We ought to to be involved with the people who are in our communities and in our, our school districts and on our street and people that we bump into on a regular basis. But it is no light thing that the very first chapter of Proverbs warns the wise man or the wise woman against throwing in their lot with friends who are headed for destruction. The first chapter of Psalms as well, the first psalm proclaims a blessing We read, on the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And we can can stretch our minds and we can come up with all sorts of practical reasons why that is true. You know, if you associate with those people, you're going to do something stupid that you're going to regret someday. You're probably going to get in trouble. You're probably going to just waste your time with all sorts of frivolities and emptiness and all sorts of vain pursuits. But Psalms actually gives us a much more dire warning why we ought not to associate nor stand, nor walk, nor sit with sinners and scoffers. We read in Psalm chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. And the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, there's a curse that comes through godless companions. You can watch it happen from time to time. You can see people just sort of drift away. They don't throw up their hands and say, you know, I'm done with all this Jesus stuff. This is it for me. I've heard the gospel one too many times. I've had it. They begin to associate more and more with unbelievers. They make unbelievers and, and godless companions their closest confidants. They begin to imbibe the wisdom of the world like a desert traveler. 
and the water's dirty, but it doesn't matter because it's wet, and they down it, and they quench their thirst, and it doesn't matter what they're taking into their bodies. And you see them like the chaff, just take to the wind and just float away. Brothers and sisters, beware the curse of godless companions. See to it that that does not describe you. Now we've seen the blessing of godly friendships and the curse of godless companions, and that leaves our practical question. We're, we're going to make this relatively straightforward. You may not remember all those four blessings and curses and all that other stuff, but I want to set before you perhaps two uh, duties, two disciplines uh, of cultivating godly friendships. If you remember anything, remember these. What does it take to cultivate godly friendships that will bear fruit of wisdom in believers? Well, it takes uh, the discipline of discernment, and it takes diligence. Discernment and diligence. What do you have to discern if you want to cultivate godly friendships? Well, first, you probably need to discern the friends that you already have. Probably means that you need to take a cold, hard look at those who are closest to you. And again, it doesn't mean that you need to to shun every non-believer, but perhaps it means that there is some friendship, some very, very close friendship that has maybe a little bit more influence over you and your Christian walk than it ought to. Maybe you need to do the very hard task of of cutting off and pulling back from some of those friendships in order to pursue good ones that will bear fruit in your life. You you need to discern the friends that you have. You also need to discern the reasons why you have not connected more deeply with the believers that you're already surface-level friends with. Friends come in, in various degrees. There are some who know us and and share everything with us. There are some who are the David to our Jonathan. There are some who will know our deepest fears and and our regrets and our struggles with sin. Not everybody will be that way, but but perhaps we need to consider who are the ones you've gotten close to and and yet you haven't gotten closer than you, you could. And if there's no other believer that's gotten close enough to be able to speak hard truths to you, perhaps you need to discern why you haven't let anybody in. Maybe you're the Simon and Garfunkel Christian, right? I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none can penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and loving I disdain. I'm a rock. I'm an I'm a... Maybe you're the Simon and Garfunkel Christian. You're saying, I don't need friendships, and you need to discern what the Lord has made you for. Not just to be an island Christian unto yourself, but to be in relationship with one another. We tend to read at the beginning of a wedding ceremony, but the Lord looked upon Adam in the garden before the fall, before sin ever entered, and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. Marriage is one remedy to that that loneliness, but it's not the only one. It's not the only friendship and relationship the Lord has given to us. Maybe you need to discern why you're you're so closed off. Maybe, Maybe it's just garden variety pride. You've got this facade of perfection And, you know, nobody's going to get past that. Nobody's going to see what's really going on because it's too dangerous to let somebody else in. Maybe you need to discern the people in your life who need a friend like you. Friendship works in two ways, folks. There are people that you hang out with, and you don't get the feeling that really you're you're twins who have been separated at birth. And yet the Lord has put them in your life so that you can be an influence on them. 
so that you can be a friend when they feel friendless. The first step in cultivating biblical friendships is to engage in some good, old-fashioned Christian discernment. To ask yourself, what has God said about biblical friendships? Where does what God has said about biblical friendships coincide with where you are, and how can you grow in greater faithfulness to what he has said you ought to be doing? It takes discernment. And then once you have discerned, it also takes diligence. Some of us, I think, have the idea that, that friendships are only real friendships if they sort of grow up like weeds. Nobody plants them, nobody watches for them, nobody wants them, they just sort of poof, they're there and they're, they're taller than everything else overnight and oh, what a surprise. Uh, really, friendships, you know, sometimes that happens, but really most friendships are more like orchids. They need to be tended, they need, they need to be uh, pollinated, they, they need to be uh, given some attention, they need to grow in the right conditions. And there's no shortcut. Good friendships are hard work. I have a missionary friend who served some time uh, doing missions work in the Middle East. He served in the UAE for several years, and he came back saying, you know, there's this saying that in the Muslim world, nothing happens without a thousand cups of tea. Because people there are slow, and they take things slowly, and they sit, and they talk, and they sit, and they talk, and they sit, and let's talk some more. Let's meet tomorrow for tea and discuss this. Well, friendships are like that. They're, they're slow. Friendships require some, some really intense face time. I mean the app. I mean, I mean real person-to-person communication, speaking and listening. Good, godly friendships take the investment of the one commodity that most Americans are short on. It takes your time. It takes your schedule. It takes your investment to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm vested in this relationship. I'm going to give myself, I'm going to commit myself to this relationship. Good friendships grow sm- slowly in small groups. When Bible studies run longer than anybody's planning because the conversation's so good. Good friendships grow in service together in the church, in committee work, in prayer together. They all take time. They require the diligence of time. They also require the diligence of vulnerability. At some point in a friendship, somebody has to take the scary step of revealing something that opens them up to rejection by the other person. That's the only way that your friendship is going to grow because that's the only time that the other friend is able to show you some gospel grace. To be able to say, I see your sin. I recognize your sin. I'm not covering over it. I'm not not ignoring that it's there and yet I'm going to love you anyway. I see your sin and I'm going to be committed to the friendship. Use some social awareness. Don't be the person that overshares to everybody all the time, but, but who is that friend that you're growing in confidence with, and how can you steadily, prayerfully move those line markers down the field toward trust together? It takes the diligence of vulnerability. Husbands, maybe you need to help your wives pursue the diligence of priority. You have a friendship with your wife? That's great. I'm glad for that. I encourage that. If you don't have a friendship with your wife, see me later. We can set up a meeting sometime this week, and we'll talk about that. But your wife needs a friendship with more than just you, and you need a friendship with more than just your wife, and so maybe you need to help your spouse, if you're in that relationship, to make these things a priority. You've got to make sure, you know what, I'm going to be home that night. I'm going to take care of the kids that night. You need to go out and spend time with this person. 
You need to get that on the calendar. Have you called her yet? Have you, have you set that up yet? Is this a priority for you? Are you going out? And it doesn't matter if you're doing something that's productive or unproductive. Just be together. Wives, maybe you need to do the same thing for your husbands. To remind him that, that fellowship and, and friendship is a priority. That we actually are made to grow together in the Lord with one another. One thing's for sure, godly friendships do not grow if you're not committed to cultivating them. And so let's pursue godly friendships with discernment and with diligence. Dear friends, there is a great blessing in godly friendships. May the Lord add that blessing to our relationships together. May he make us a people who walk together in wisdom as we walk with him. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and you have made us friends when once we were enemies. We thank you that you have stilled the enmity that was between us and you by laying all of our sins upon Christ to show us what it means to love one another. We pray that uh, as a church you would help us to do this, to grow in relationship, to grow in friendship one with another to recognize perhaps those who are lonely in our midst, to see them when it's so easy to overlook and to reach out. Oh Lord, we pray that you would comfort the hearts of the lonely among us, that you would keep us from the snare of listening and associating too closely with the wisdom of the world and so turning our back on the fellowship and the friendship that you've given us here in the church. Oh Lord, would you do this and unite us together for the sake of Christ in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.